listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, as we continue our series on value creation, I actually want to pay you a, a, a very serious and sincere compliment to open this episode. Oh boy, should I sit down? He's going to need to sit down because because Mark, our, our guest today, I never am sincere or honest at the opening of, a, of an episode. But when we set up the, the series on this, we talked about all these different aspects of value creation. And you actually pointed out really astutely that at the heart of value is business model. And at first, I kind of turned my head sideways and said, well, what do you mean by that? And then he started to outline his thoughts on what we needed to talk about. And then he said, hey, I know the perfect person for us to talk to about this. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So today we're going to talk about business models, which I actually believe, based on what we've had our discussion about, it is actually the very heart of value creation in general, because it's the heart of value. So our guest is Mark Stack, Chief Sales Officer at Sphera. Did I just mess that up? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote CSO on my paper, which is obviously his chief sales officer. But then as soon as I said, it, I was like, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's not at all what he does. Well, yeah. there that's where we're going to jump right in with Mark's <laughs> introduction to himself. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me today. So maybe just a little bit about my background. So again, I'm Mark Stack. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here today as chief services officer um, currently at Sphera. In past lives, I've, I've held a, a wide variety of roles, 30 or so years I've been out in the workplace, everything from chief financial officer to chief operating officer to a GM and across a variety of industries from professional services, both as a consultant and, and leading consulting firms to media, to technology, and you know helping kind of find my way through all of those various business models and, and trying to drive more value. But there's one thing you've never done until today. You've never been the head of sales until the, until 30 seconds ago. <laughs> so, I, I agree with that. <laughs> so, so, I just gave you a new title. I hope you're cool with it. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how the organization is going to feel about that. Let's dive in because actually that, that's a, what I really like about having you on for this topic is that you've seen and been inside of or led all these different types of organizations. And I think there's so much to be learned from that sort of cross-section of experience. So as Jeff pointed out in the setup, I think let's start at the very beginning. When we use the phrase business model. What does that even mean? That's a, a very good question. So the way I think about a business model, it's, it's more of thinking about the right structure led by the right people, led with the right skill set using the right processes and leveraging the right tools, right? To create value in alignment with, with your company strategy or business strategy. And that's how I think about it. So it's sort of the combination of everything. It's structure, people, skill sets, processes, and tools all directed at the strategy. That's right. That's right. Okay. Obviously that's easier said than done though. (laughs) That's for sure. That's for sure. I like to think of it, I like Mark's definition, but because I'm a simple marketing guy, for me, it's it's how do you combine the assets that the firm has at its disposal? And I think when, when we get into this conversation and Mark starts sharing some of the experiences a- across just these unique industries, 
and unique business conditions, because I think business conditions is the real driver behind how do you apply these assets in order to create value? Because my sense and what I know about you, Mark, is that every situation you've been in has really been a dynamic one where the market conditions are, are changing and changing significantly. Yes, I would agree with that. It's interesting because every team I think I've ever managed, I I have a phrase that keeps coming up every time, which is change equals opportunity. (laughs) 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 And and it really, you know, obviously it's not just about me. It's it's about the teams that I, I work with and that work with me to accomplish this combination of things. But you're, you're right, Jeff. I think over the years, I've seen a variety of things. In, in my early career, a lot of what I saw was around, you know, how the early internet would actually evolve into new business models. You know, these terms like business to business and business to consumer didn't actually exist. I worked on a project once where I had to price out the cost of a digital download of a, of a music file, right? You know, think about that. This is before iTunes, you know, and you could progress from there going into publishing with, you know, the steady decline of, of traditional print ad revenue. You can go into professional services and software where you have the evolution of on-premise, highly expensive, high, you know, high total cost of ownership to deploy types of models there, you know, in the shift to SaaS. In each of those examples, there was, there was a, you're in an inflection point in the strategy and the market demand of what people want. And what, many times what you find is you're, you look at your, what you have on the board, as they say, like, what are my assets? Again, you know, structure, people, data, processes, tools, and, and, and software itself. And you say, well, you know, does this still work? Right. And what can I do with this? Because, you, you know, you don't get the luxury of just kind of starting over with a clean slate. You know, most of the business is about generating value with, the, with what you own and maybe just thinking about it in a completely different way. And I think that's where the business model comes into play. So let's dive into that a little bit. I made the statement that the business model is at the heart of value creation. I guess the first question is, is do you agree with that? And then if you do go beneath that a little bit, because I, I really like what you just said about how, you know, it's really about combining the assets that you have at your disposal to create value based on what people really want. And so there's not really a question there, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think this goes back to my opening statement, right, of, of what the definition of a business model is, right? It's the right structure led by the right people with the right skill set, using the right processes and tools. And, and this all has to align with the, the strategy you're trying to accomplish. Now, is the business model unto itself the most important thing? I don't know if that's true. I might I might throw a curveball in our little conversation today. But for me, it's about the people doing that, executing that. So I have a concept. All of my team leads hear me use the same three words all the time. And th- those three words are own your world. <laughs> 
That's a, that's a phrase I've used many, many times over the decades. And, and basically what that means is exactly the definition of what it described a business model. So for example, when, you know, you have to, who is going to look at this? This is not a one man job to, to shape the business model, to deploy the business model, to actually generate value. An analogy I often like to use is if you're a fan of like survivor shows, like Bear Grylls, for example, <laughs> he's one of my favorites, right? I mean, here's a guy, if you've watched the show and for those of you who haven't, you know, that are listening right now. Think of it this way. Here's a guy who goes out in the wild, sometimes with celebrities or whatever, a guest, and he's like, well, how do I survive? And, and literally the common traits of every single episode are very similar to what I'm describing around business models. He, he looks around him every single time and says, what resources do I have available around me? Right. And where the magic happens in terms of value creation is when he sees something that's there that maybe most people don't observe, they don't think much of it, but somehow he's able to use that little something and deploy it in a different way, a unique way, right? That helps him survive and, and not just survive, but thrive. <laughs> not to be pejorative, but you know, a good example is like, hey, I've got some cow dung on the ground I'm going to use this for fuel right? and, mm-hmm. and make a fire, right? Or I'm going to put some certain bodily fluids in a bag and use it as a focusing of sunlight to start a fire, right? I mean, these are things that, that most people don't think about. And I think, I think to struggle, and that's why I talk about the, the importance of the people and the team around you and owning your world. What I mean by that is your leadership, your the, the managers you have below you have to look at the situation collectively as a team with you. Think about your strategy, think about where you, you believe value is gonna be created and what the market needs. And then thinking about what is in front of me? How am I gonna deploy that in a different way? I think one of the struggles that most organizations have is that the management team in, in many situations are, are what I would describe as as uh, cog executives, right? So if you remember a cog in a wheel, right? Maybe this is appropriate for <laughs> things around pedaling and things like that. But, <laughs> but I would say that how many times have you come across a, a manager or an executive in your life who's been doing the exact same thing over and over again, just turning the cog, the same old cog, the same way for years and years and years? Right. And that's the problem. A lot of the skill set, the managerial skill set out there today may be taking not able to look around them and look and see, well, what's the why behind the what I'm trying to accomplish with this business model? Why is it this business model? What does it actually do that's so unique? What is the combination we're trying to accomplish? And and break free. I think that's a key theme here. You got to break the, free of the constraints of what you've done and and turning that cog. And then that allows you again to own your world and come back to you. Okay, you know, is your are your managers looking at what they have and and so on and so forth down the organization to say. Ah, that's interesting. I've never approached this need this way before, but I have all the parts in front of me, right? It's right on the ground. It's this this piece of rope I found or a, a broken bottle or whatever it is in Bear Grylls case. You know, in the corporate world, it might be, oh, I have interesting skill sets I didn't know existed in my organization, or I have a data asset I can think about in a different way. 
And I think that's where the value really can get created. So going back to your original question around, is the business model like the end all be all? I would say it is, but only to the extent that you have the leadership team to affect the right change to evolve the business model to meet the needs of the marketplace. I like that. I like that a lot because what I heard you say, Mark, there's a couple of things there. One, it's it's a focus on the market and a client need. What's the value potential, if you will, generally, not just from the assets that you have to deliver, but what is the market potential? The second thing is it's about innovation and you have to be thinking about things in new ways. And third, it doesn't have to wait for some cataclysmic event that you should be doing this constantly, evolving this model. Well, can I ask a question about that though? Do most organizations resist flexing, changing, or evolving their business model until a cataclysmic event occurs? Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. I think so much of my career has been marked by finding myself in roles in those organizations. And where, that's exactly the point. It's, where it's change tough. has been thrust upon them, and now it's, what the heck do we do? That's exactly right. How do you avoid that? <laughs> How do you be the antithesis of that? How do you build an organization that's designed to flex, that's designed to, or not even designed, that's capable of flexing and reevaluating the business model without it being an existential threat that, that forces the the change. Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to it, it really needs to come from the top. In, in my opinion, my current environment is very much like that. We from a, a series of our values as a company, we have something that's a, a call to action as one of those things as one of our key tenants. So that was something we, we purposely thought about as an organization. Also, I think it's 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 a, it's a question of, again, who do you have on the team? Right? Do you Fill your leadership roles with COG executives, right? Or do you look for people that have that view of, again, a better grills? What do I have in front of me? What are my assets? And, and let's think about how I deploy those things. And when you surround yourself with those people or you coach those people to become those kinds of people, you then end up with an army, right, whose natural inclination is to do that. I would say the other thing that's really important is, you know, they always talk about, especially here, we talk about failing forward quite a bit. You need to have a culture and an environment that allows for people to do that. Because if you're constantly kind of evolving and tweaking and retooling, and to be honest with you, all of those words I just use, frankly, as in kind of hearing myself speak, are they, they have a little bit of negative connotation. <laughs> to them, frankly, right? Yeah. Retooling, right? Usually means something bad's happening. Somebody's losing their job, right? I would I would describe this as more like reshaping, right? What is the mold? What is the clay I've got here? Oh, that's interesting. Let me make something slightly different. Let me add a little little design to that. I think though, you got to be okay. You got to be okay. And the other thing I would just say is you can't be stagnant. Like, you know, this kind of dialogue, I'm actually going through this this situation with my team right now. We're thinking about the future, thinking about aggressive growth, which in our market is readily available. And how do you scale, right? This is my current subject that we're working on with my team. And, and we're trying to visualize, right? What does this look like? 
and this exercise is not something we do like every several years. It's actually something we do every year, and if not multiple times a year. And in fact, even in our, our management sessions and our executive sessions, so much of the dialogue is around, like we, we're just not married to things is, is the best way to describe it. We find like, hey, is this working? What's working? What's not? You know, what really matters and what we're trying to do here? You know, let's, let's parse away the, the noise and just not be beholden to these structures because, you know, there's so many potential opportunities that have been tried over the years. You know, we can, t- we can rob from the best, right? Oh, this isn't working. Let's try a little version of this now. This role that used to be doing this, we're going to try it this way now and we're going we're gonna to redeploy it that way, right? Maybe with different incentives, different goals. And that's going to be more in line with generating value. And that's okay. It's okay. And that's, I think, a key element of that. I, unfortunately, I think a lot of organizations just don't have that in their DNA. Hey, I wanted to ask you, Mark, going to your Bear Grylls example, how do firms identify that core strength, that thing that other people aren't seeing that is at their disposal that creates this, this cascading effect, if you will, to other decisions. And to clarify, it's not usually one thing, right? Like it's usually more like there's a collection of assets and it's the way that we combine and deploy them that is unique. So it's, and the reason I, only reason I clarify that, Jeff, is I feel like sometimes like when we talk about building a differentiated firm or something that's highly unique, there's this idea that, that you're going to discover this one thing that's special about you that's, that nobody mm-hmm. else has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably a chasing a unicorn, right? Like you're never going to find one thing. It's sort of this unique combination. So I love the question. So I would like to hear your thoughts on how do you kind of cut through the noise to figure out how to deploy assets in a unique way or, or identify that combination that's unique and special. Jason, I think you're, you're spot on, Mark, before you answer that. I think you're, you're absolutely spot on. I 100% believe it is some combination of attributes and if you look at, at Mark as an example, his experience is, is kind of one of a kind in the type of value that he can bring to an organization as a result of that, that combination of strengths that he brings. So he's kind of like a little microcosm, I think. But what, Mark, I heard you say is the real key, the real fulcrum is the people thinking differently about the combination of, of the assets. And you use the term coach, when you're coaching people into thinking this Mm -hmm. way. I'm not sure if that's where you're going to go with your answer with with Mark, but I'd love to learn a little bit about how you coach people to change their thinking in the way you describe. Okay. So I think there's, there's going to, two things there. I'm going to, I'm going to try to hit them both. Um, Nine questions, guys. So let me, let me, let me first start how do I know what we have? Like, what? how do we know the, the assets in front of us? Do we even see the assets in front of us? I'm going to answer that question kind of two ways. First is from maybe outside in perspective. And what I mean by that is, so again, one of the random hats I've worn over the years is I've also done M&A and corporate development. And, you know, for me personally, that's that's given me the unique opportunity to look at hundreds of companies in my space, particularly my current organization. 
And what you find is, is as you're looking for spending money on other people's assets, you, you start to discover like, well, why do I find that? Why am I willing to spend millions of dollars on, on that, right? What, what's so special about that, right? That I'm willing to do that. And you, you start to see some themes emerging, you know, around what dif- differentiates, you know, just a, a series of items versus something that's differentiated or um, creates a moat for you, you know, in terms of value. And, and so, for example, in, in our space, one of the things that we know we've discovered over the years is data, for example, is, is a unique asset. For those of you who look at the, 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 that framework that sits out there, the five V's of big, big data, I, I doubt I'm going to be able to successfully list them all, but, you know, volume, veracity, velocity, et cetera. But, you know, what, what I found is, is part of my function today is we, I cover my content operations, my data operations in the company and, and how do we maintain these data assets. And as we look at companies out there that are doing that, the, the common theme there, going back to the business models, is you would be surprised at how hard it is to create a truly valuable data asset. In many cases, it can take years and years and years and years. And usually, going back to those five Vs of big data, somebody has cracked the code on the, the business model, the operating model, right, from a people process technology perspective that allows you to efficiently collect data, clean data, transform the data, and then shape it in a way that actually allows it to get monetized, right, and create value. That sounds very simple, but that's actually remarkably complex. And to do it efficiently and make a profit at it is, is very, very challenging. So, so that was one of the, again, outside-in examples I can give you is you start looking around and going, oh, yeah, you know, people you know, eh, I could replicate that. I can do, or maybe I can create my own content. Yeah, somebody else can replicate that. But data assets are very, very hard to replicate or even software assets that are solving a problem that other people haven't solved before. That's also very hard to replicate sometimes because you're talking about workflows and how they apply to various various other business models out in the marketplace. Those are unique. Then from an internal perspective, right, this is maybe going to tie on Jeff's question about coaching and how do you get your people to think about things. And a good place to start there is on the people side. So a a lesson I heard of years ago, I was was working at this organization, Hewitt, as a COO, and it it was kind of a tough time. This was during the Great Recession. And one of the things I did back then was I did a skill inventory of, of the organization. And I was looking for some help with stuff. And, and I discovered in this example, I discovered this guy who was a, a Six Sigma master black belt who was buried in some kind of junior mid-level function in a random department <laughs> and and I was like wait a second here's this guy who has this remarkable skill set at the most experienced level and he's currently not leveraging any of that for our organization whatsoever so I literally just ripped him out of there and stole him for myself for personal benefit to try to create value during a relatively very tough economic time frame. But I think that was a lesson for me that I teach teach my leadership teams. You don't know what you don't know about your people, right? You need to actually 
gather information, you know, both personally, like, hey, get to know people. What did you do? How do you do things? Even if it's not even work related, you'd be surprised what kind of knowledge people can apply to the workspace. I suspect Bear Grylls would make an excellent executive, for example, or just like what skills that are on the table today. You know, you've been doing things again, cog executives. Oh, I've been running the team the same way, same way with people doing their jobs like they've always been. But, oh, guess what? I found out this person has some unique knowledge of big data or or maybe they've, they're a black belt or, or again, oh, they did some stuff in sustainability, you know, that I wasn't aware of. That's kind of really unique knowledge. I, I, it's just not their job today. And so I think that's a really good example of what I'm talking about. You have to coach your people to, again, if you're thinking holistically, what does that actually mean? Right. And I always tell them the best way to do this is map out your value chain. Right. This is this is actually tactically how I do it. In fact, this is the conversation I had with my team leads last Thursday is we're going to map out our value chain again. So professional services. Right. The way I like to think about it, basic components. Right. Prospect and selling, scoping and quoting, staffing and delivery, invoicing and collecting and maintenance and ongoing care. Right. Each of those functions in your value chain and professional services has pain points, right? It has things that you have to address. So as a business model, right? And this is where the whole idea of, well, is this the right model? Is this the right structure? Is this the right people deploying the right processes and tools to fit that particular need? So you can go from, you know, broad corporate business model to even operating model with the same concept right? And executing that business model. You know, do I have the right people to execute or not? And and how can I do that? And so a lot of times it might be, what are my people assets, right? That's a good place to start. Do I have the right team? Do I have to reshape the team? Do I have to move people in completely different roles? Do my roles even make sense? Maybe I need to create new roles, like challenge all the assumptions, right? That job that we used to do this way, let's create a new one. Let's change the definitions. Who do we have on the table, though, to fill that job? Well, you need to do that inventory. So there is a kind of this idea of inventorying first your people and your people skills, and then moving beyond that towards other types of assets, whether it's data or processes, but thinking about how that applies to your value chain and the steps of that value chain, which then effectively makes up your business model overall. So hopefully I covered both of your questions. <laughs> you, you covered mine. I like that. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Mark, can you take us through some real life examples from your background? Sure. I'll give you two very disparate examples. So the first one, I'll actually talk about publishing. So I had the unique opportunity to work for a major publisher in the United States, uh, running one of their larger publications in the risk management area. And they actually wanted somebody, I was their first non-traditional publisher they've actually hired to run, run this particular book. 
And, you know, it had all the same problems that you see across media. Print advertising was in decline. You get pennies on the dollar for, you know, similar digital assets for advertising. And then at the same time, in this particular example, when you talk about assets and what you have on the table, you know, so much of media today is about aggregation. But in this particular case, the asset we had was we actually had writers. We actually had real people developing content, interviewing people, writing stories in long form. So, and that, as you might imagine from a business model example, like I have this problem, right? I have a a situation where the way I'm getting paid for that cost of goods sold, those, those people, assets and the material and the content they produce was not covering the cost anymore because the traditional print ad revenue model was dying or at least depleting significantly. So the question you had to ask yourself is from a business model perspective, the way I thought about it was, well, first of all, I need to diversify, right, strategically other revenue models that weren't done before that are not print centric, right? And then at the same stance, I couldn't create a business model where I had to double or triple the size of my staff to actually feed all of those new channels that I'm trying to monetize, right? So I needed to get like more content or maybe a different way of saying this is content in multiple forms, right? Using the same amount of costs, but multiplied it over and over. And and, and basically what I came up with was this concept to call the, the content money multiplier. I just made up this name and I don't know. Feel free to use it if you wish. But, but it's like, it's what I use with my team. We call it the content modeling multiplier. And what it meant was we did two things, right? So first of all, we created primary content, right? Using our writers and they would create long form. And then we would supplement that content by gathering information around subjects, right? Along different subject matter channels. So in this case, it might've been property and casualty insurance or the brokerage committee or our community or, or benefits, for example, could, as examples. And so you would have a combination of long form content, really in-depth reporting and analysis, augmented by just collecting different stories out in the marketplace today, but doing it super efficiently, right? And with that, we also got into creating data. Right. So we started doing a lot more survey data, collecting more primary information. And between all of these things, we took that material and we would package it in its first form and then repackage it in multiple different forms. So and that had different purposes. And what we would try to do is as we were repurposing that content, we would do it in a way that was trying to solve very, very in demand business problems of the day. So maybe at the time it might have been something like cyber risk, right? Um, People are getting hacked all the time. How do I as a company, our readership, why would they care about the subject and what are they trying to accomplish? So what we would do is there was a problem statement and we created a form or a category, if you will, around a, a category. And it would start with just the articles, but we would create a critical mass of information. And that information would evolve going from defining the information, what's the, what's the problem? Is the problem relevant to me, right, as a reader? Is it material to me, right? And then, ah, okay, now I'm engaged. Okay, so a whole set of content, which might be long form, talks about that. And then it gets into other things like, well, help me define 
the approaches. So maybe that shapes the content into a white paper, right? Where it just repackages a lot of the material we have, but augments it with just a little bit of marginal cost, right? But the marginal revenue of that incremental revenue stream of the white papers, which we sold, right? Cover the smaller marginal cost of repackaging the content, okay? And then that then was augmented with solutions, right? Which may have been related to the data or sprinkling in the data, again, repackaging it into a solution-oriented outcome, right? And then we would put all of that in a community and we'd let the community add value, for example, with their content, which again was a low cost, no cost solution. So here's an example where we started generating millions of dollars around sponsorship of these channels or these problems, or maybe sponsorships around the answers or the solution providers for these problems. But from a cost structure perspective, we, we kept doing what we were doing, but we just added or reshaped our operations, our structure, the right structure, the right people, the right processes and tools. We, we tweaked that a bit to allow for this kind of repackaging of content over and over again for just a little bit of marginal cost at each stage of transformation. But ultimately, I was able to develop several new revenue streams, which helped improve the business. So that's one example, a very, very tactical, specific example. Another one, which is, I think, more near and dear to Jeff's heart is in professional services. So a good example of that, I think maybe even here at, at Sphera, you know, when we were actually a carve out initially from, as a portfolio of businesses from IHS Market, which then came together. And again, I mentioned earlier this idea that the market was evolving, right? So we had a bunch of software assets that were on premise, and but the market wanted SaaS. Why did the market want SaaS, right? Well, we had gone through this great recession, right? Companies were saying, I can't afford all this infrastructure. I can't, I need to focus on terms like total cost of ownership. The maintenance costs are crazy. Every time I want to do an upgrade, it literally could take a year and an army of professional services people to do that, right? So think about this now. The market is changing what they want and what they value, right? Because of market dynamics and situation. From a person running a professional services organization, what did that mean? Well, first of all, what it meant was I actually had the wrong structure, you know, and the wrong model to fit that need. And, and specifically what that meant was, to be perfectly blunt, I had too much of the wrong kind of people, okay? So when you go and do a on-premise deployment over the course of the year, you literally are staffing an army to do that, okay? And you're maintaining this mammoth amount of capacity. So what's fascinating is, you know, in the six years or so I've been here, in that time frame, the services organization physically in terms of absolute numbers has shrunk significantly, right? But in the mix, of that organizational size, I've shifted the mix away from big armies of deployment people to specialized teams, leveraging third-party strategic implementing firms that we partner with now. Those are the firms that want to make their money as our core business model being services firms, being doing deployments. So what we now have are on the software side, we have a lot of a combination of more project managers, people that are able to focus on the quality points of what we provide in software and data and saying, oh, 
hey, we're going to work on the upfront requirements of what we're trying to accomplish for the client and how we know we can derive value for them with our software. So we have a combination of more subject matter experts, right, who initially help guide companies and shape the solution. And then we have teams that partner with SI partners where it's more of an 80-20 model in some cases when you're talking about big, big deployments where we focus more on quality control, project management, and collaboration, and the SI partner provides the bodies, right? Now, to do that, we had to do some other things. We had to train these people, right? We have to make sure there's quality, and they become effectively an extension of what normally would have been an internal pyramid, but now is that. So our focus is so much more on subject matter expertise and collaboration and deployment than on you know, uh, financing an army of people for an old model. And in the process of doing that, right, not only have we scaled uh, the revenues of, of this organization significantly over the last uh, several years, but our margins actually have, have also improved during that time frame. So, so kind of an interesting shift, right? You would think that more bodies actually equals more money, but in this case, that, that didn't necessarily mean the case. And also, what that also did as an aside is that brought up the value proposition for this part of our business model of, of professional services to where we add a lot of value for our organizations. We tend to deal now, it, it works for us also because our customers in, in this current organization at Sphera tend to focus on very complex situations. And, and that's what we're good at as a company. We focus on these this complexity. And so, you know, it was a natural collaboration, right? So our experts now, going back to the right combination of assets in our business model, we do view a combination of software and data and expertise as the winning combination that drives value for this corporate company. And that only happens if there's a significant amount of experts in, in my organization that helps visualize the value of the, the two other assets and brings them all together. Mark, you didn't, you didn't say this. And I know we're going to get the time warning here from from Jason in just a second, but you've you've kind of hit on two of the three elements I look at when working with clients around the go to market strategy, and you know that's the core capabilities made up of of the people and the skills and and things. Um, the second one is what's the market opportunity? You know what's the dynamic happening where you can apply that value. The one thing I haven't heard you say, but I think is is really important, is that a firm has some brand that's already existing, some relevance in the market. And that business model has to be consistent with that relevance, or there needs to be a strategy to adapt that brand's relevance in order to go to market. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your thinking? Because you're one of the best marketing minds I've ever seen out of, out of the finance and operations world. I, I want to get your, your take on that. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I think this industry that I'm in now is kind of an interesting example of that. So six years ago, people focused on well, let me take a step back. Let me let me let me free shape it this way. So internally, a lot of times I like to I like to talk about uh, and actually this is a conversation that you, Jeff, you and I had years ago <laughs> around Maslow's hierarchy. 
I don't know if you remember this. Mm-hmm. And so for those of you who remember Maslow, there's different different levels of, let's call it value creation, right? For, for To use that term, given the context here. So on the bottom rung, right, in Maslow, it's, it's about more, how do I stay alive? I need air, right? I need water. I need nutrients. And as you, you go up the ladder, you go to kind of self-fulfillment and, and those types of higher level concepts. In the business world today, particularly in, in this industry and in a lot of industries, I like to think about like, where, are, where is the customer where need in terms of the hierarchy, right? And what we've seen in terms of evolution and a lot in this industry and others is companies on, on our bottom rung are more about regulatory compliance, right? And staying in business, right? So in, uh, in a lot of industries we deal with, you know, we, do, we deal with what they call many dirty and dangerous industries and other types of operational models across a wide variety of industries. And those people are like, hey, there's a lot of government regulations involved there, right? Um, just to operate, right? And stay open. Like you can be shut down tomorrow. People can die, right? In, in some of the stuff we deal with. And so the bottom rung is about, you know, safety and, and things of that nature and compliance. And then as you move up, though, you get into other higher level concepts of, you know, compliance, improving productivity, driving that. And then as you get to the highest level of the rung, you get customers that what we call lighthouse customers that are like beacons of their industry, right? They're literally trying to be best in breed and being a a unique role model for everybody else in the industry. And there's a evolution that organizations go through as they go up this hierarchy, right? And so we've had to, in the industry from a branding perspective, has had to kind of adapt, right? As the market itself has evolved, right? So before you might use terms like to define yourselves as a brand six years ago as like environmental health and safety, right? Or just risk enterprise risk management was another term or, or, or GRC, governance, risk and compliance. And now it's ESG, right? This is the new one, and, and environmental, social and governance. All of those have very unique brand positions associated with them. The market actually values those brand positions in different ways from an acquisitions perspective. And so it's it's fascinating because literally all of those terms were bandied about by various companies in this market at various stages over the last few years. But, but they reflected where the industry was in terms of their maturities and where they are in that hierarchy as they're changing. But I think going to your point, you know, you can't be static with your brand positioning or what you're what you're stating, because in essence, ESG is a really good example. Like when you look at the real underlying definitions of environmental, social and governance out there, at least is it the case with our organization, we you look at our assets and you're like, oh, I actually have software and data <laughs> and, and expertise that actually serves all three of those areas mm-hmm. at the root operational level. And you're like, ah, that's a differentiator. That's how we create value in this marketplace, right? This ESG brand, that's a, that's a good one, <laughs> right? And we can fulfill that brand. And maybe we just need to, again, going back to this business model, recombine certain things or deploy them in a different way that fits that notion of customer demand and the value that the customers are trying to achieve in that space. And so that is driving, you know, significant, significant amounts of demand for, for our products and services as a result. 
And I think other companies have to do the same as they position themselves in the marketplace, right? But you can't be, you can't just, you know, stick to what's happened before. And all of those names, you know, as I mentioned, they've all come out at some level in six years. Six years is nothing in terms of a timeline. But, you know, that's the part I, even I try to wrap my head around, but you really, you know, luckily we tend to move quickly and, and kind of evolve and, and pivot where we need to and, and fit the needs out there. Yeah. Well, I think you're in a, you're in a space that's going through rapid change. And I think that's the, the heart of that. And you've been in those spaces a lot. We need to go to wrap. And, and I think what I'm going to do to, to, to close this out is offer a couple of takeaways for me that what were really valuable that maybe listeners will hear as well. And your last discussion about that, I think kind of hit the heart of it. My takeaway number one, and Jeff, if you have others, feel free to add them at the end, is the business model sits somewhere at the intersection between client wants and needs on one side and organizational strengths on the other. So like whatever your collection of assets are that are going to meet those needs. And I really love the story you told about the transition from on-prem to SaaS. Because I think that was a moment in time a lot of IT services firms can probably relate to as a time when all of a sudden client wants and needs shifted and <laughs> strengths and assets were a little bit misaligned. They had a, they had a reconciling. And the second thing, I, you didn't actually say this, but actually as I listened to you talk, I think there are times when organizations' perceived weaknesses turned out to be strengths. And... And when they look at it differently, they suddenly go, wait a minute, we thought that was a credible weakness that we needed to, you know, let all those people go for some reason. And turns out, you know what, they're a unique value that we have that nobody else has. And how do we make more out of it? And how do we change the business model such that we can make more of the strength that we have because we're not actually getting as much out of it as we could? So those were sort of the two, my two huge learnings from this time spent with you. And I really appreciate you you sharing your experience and also sharing kind of like these moments when you've been sort of in the the heart of a very fluid ambiguous change in the marketplace and how you've navigated it pretty deftly in some pretty big organizations so thanks for joining us thanks for having me thanks mark Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh.